I thought when you went away you'd come back. I hoped here where I grew up, I might find... Well, I, I really don't know what it was I wanted to find. A place I belonged, I guess. A place that when I woke up in the morning, I'd be glad it was another day. And when I went to sleep, I'd felt like it meant something to have been awake. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 44, and that is Erica's choice. Let's find out what that is. I selected The Enchanted Cottage from 1945, directed by John Cromwell, with Robert Young, Dorothy McGuire, Herbert Marshall, and Mildred Natwick. It's the story of a young couple who feel transformed by the power of love and an enchanted cottage. Let's get right to it. We open with Herbert Marshall, by the way, one of my all-time favorites, at the piano. He sets up a bit of the story for us. He tells us that Oliver and Laura, whom we'll meet in a little bit, are on their way to this gathering. He's been working on a new piece. He is a pianist. And he calls it a tone poem, which I think is a beautiful way to describe this film as well. This piece he's working on is called The Enchanted Cottage. Well, mood and atmosphere seem crucial for this one. Because this doesn't seem like the kind of film that becomes a favorite based on its individual merits, but almost more so because it came to you when you really needed it. It struck a nerve. Time and place of discovery seem integral into this making its way into your personal canon. For me, this is quite a peculiar movie in that I can't think of another film that has this same kind of tone, which I'll try to hit on throughout our discussion. But it's at once almost an elegy, but a celebration of love. It feels almost gothic even at certain points, even though the story isn't particularly a gothic one. It's so sad and melancholy and yet hopeful at the same time. And it feels as if it takes place in the middle of winter with no lights anywhere. The alternate title for this could have been Shooting Eric is in a Barrel. True. This takes all those boxes of so many choices that you've made for the show so far. Similar things being The Uninvited, Rebecca, it has that gothic feeling that you mentioned. It's got the crashing waves on the seaside. Exactly. It begins with shots of a crumbling estate in the moonlight. My dream. If only every movie had these elements, you might never have gone outside as a kid. I rarely did anyway, and not all movies did. And this one has Herbert Marshall in it, too, so... I was thinking when we were watching this, if someone had been ghost-murdered in George Washington Slept Here and Percy Kilbride was a haunted lighthouse keeper instead of a comical farmhand, that movie (laughs) would be in your top ten forever. (laughs) Now, you first started this discussion talking about the time and place in which you see something really making a difference. And I didn't have that much of a kismet reaction to it when I first saw it, but it's lately been speaking to me so much with how I'm feeling now. That's why I brought it back. What is it about it that 
lodged itself in there in the first place that left it to be retrieved after all this time. It's the tone. Okay. It feels like nothing else. So let's get into that particular tone. Okay. We've got the scene of this dinner party happening, and it fades to the ocean, as you mentioned, and this crumbling estate. It's a large house, and part of it had completely burned down, but one wing was left untouched. And it's been run by a widow, played by Mildred Natwick, and it's rented only to honeymooners. Which, again, should make you feel like a, maybe a light comedy is about to start, mm. but it couldn't feel more opposite than that. It's almost like what we're sitting in now, which is a very windy day, where you can feel and hear the trees brushing against the house. It feels like that happens all the time at this place. This is our enchanted cottage. We again meet Herbert Marshall. He's a blind pianist. He's being led by his young nephew. And we meet Laura, played by Dorothy McGuire. She's on her bike coming up to the house. As you would imagine, there's some local lore around this house. One is that the widow is a witch. It is New England, after all. And the other is that the house is haunted. First, though, Laura meets Uncle John. They have a really lovely conversation. And John is talking with his nephew about how pleasant Laura is. And the nephew is the first one to tell his uncle, who is blind, She's terrible homely. And that's not the last time we'll hear this. It is hammered on this point over and over again that she is plain, unattractive, homely to the point of being frightening in some cases. Basically, people treat her as if she's a monster almost who should be hidden away and in fact reveals how monstrous their own behavior is. Because we're talking about Dorothy McGuire. Right. Which immediately made me think, if Dorothy McGuire is being portrayed as so hideous as to necessarily be shunned, what does that do to the self-image and self-confidence of a viewer either in 1945 or in 2017? That's part of the reason that I had said that this has really been speaking to me lately. I mentioned in the last episode it's the period of my Shirley Boothening right now, <laughs> where I'm just feeling less and less, less attractive, like, I guess, to less the outside like a world. human and more like a potato. More like a sack of moldy potatoes. Yeah, it's been happening, and so this idea of being invisible, mm -hmm. and then when seen, everyone wishes they could have turned away in time. I'm over-dramatizing. I don't mean to fall into that trap that's created by the outside world that I somehow undervalue myself. It's just a feeling I've been having, and so I remembered this, mm -hmm. really. And again, we're talking about Dorothy McGuire, and essentially, in her quote-unquote homely state, basically she's just sort of combed her hair down and not worn makeup and not really trimmed her eyebrows. That's really about it, and yet she's treated as if... Frankenstein's monster has come out of the house. Well, we will revisit this theme over and over again because it crops up multiple times throughout the film and it's the most interesting slash troubling aspect of it. Aside from the core message of the film that true love is transformative, aside from those two main thrusts of the film though, what are some of the other smaller, more subtle things that are happening here? We're about to see the inside of the house, the cottage part. 
Laura goes in, and she's clearly, to keep reusing this word, enchanted. It's a very important word, and they highlight the distinction between enchanted and haunted, for instance. It's not an accident that they very specifically chose that word, which is a thing I love about it, that they are so specific with the language. They are being very careful about what they are trying to connote or denote, either one, and I really appreciate that about it. The lighting on her in these moments is as if by low firelight, there's a gentle glow that bathes her. And we meet Mildred Natwick, another person who is consistently being attached to this word of homely through her entire career. Laura is looking for a job. And she and the widow fit together because Laura is, above all things, a sensible person. She doesn't believe the cottage is haunted. She's not superstitious. We learn that she's back from a trip, from being with family for a long period of time, and and it sounds like she had worked for them as well. And this part is the scene that we had done at the beginning of the episode, where she's talking about being away and coming back, hoping to find some sort of sense of belonging and purpose. And you mentioned how specific the language is, and this really comes to my core, that sense of waking up and having it mean something. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful. We next learn that the latest group of potential honeymooners are coming by to look at the cottage to hopefully rent it. This is when we meet Robert Young, who was Oliver, and his fiancée, played by Hilary Brooke, who for me was always that go-to lady when you were looking for somebody really hard-edged, but outwardly beautiful. To me, she immediately struck me as, this is who you hire when you can't afford Anne Sheridan. It's that whole thing that Mary Astor said, the life cycle of an actress. Who's Mary Astor? Get me Mary Astor. Get me a Mary Astor type. Who's Mary Astor? She is the Anne Sheridan type to me. She is. She played a lot more villains, I think, though. That's that's true. When the couple comes in, Oliver is very friendly. He's talking with Laura. They're talking about art and artifacts in the house. She's sharing some of the stories that she knows and talks about how it's like living in a fairy tale. Clearly his fiance is not so enchanted by the house. This is when they have a little bit of the exchange that I thought about when you were talking about how careful the language is. They talk about how the house is not haunted, it's enchanted. And this means happiness and beauty instead of sadness because the house has always been for newlyweds. And she points out that beautiful section of the window where all of the lovers have etched their names throughout the centuries. We next find out that because it's wartime, Oliver has applied for an army commission as a flyer. And we start to see some of those slightly uncanny moments. The widow, Mildred Natwick, seems to think that he's going to get this commission very quickly. It's almost as if she's seeing into the future. And Oliver and his fiance decide to go ahead and write their names in the glass. When he tries, the stone in her engagement ring falls out. So that can't be good. No, the house is rejecting them. Specifically her. Yes. Laura notices there's a calendar clock there as well, and it's still set to 1917, and we'll learn why later on. Again, some uncanniness when a windstorm picks up outside as well. The house knows something that maybe even the viewers don't. Although I think it's very obvious to viewers as well. What would you call that specific characteristic, that quality of immediately knowing that these two people do not belong together? 
How old is that device and how many ways can it be communicated? Is it the emotional distance between the two, the intellectual distance between the two, some combination of both, something that I'm not thinking of? Because it seems extremely obvious to me. And we've seen it a million times, mostly in romantic comedies, where the film begins with someone attached to someone they shouldn't be with. You meet the ugly duckling, magical things happen, and then by the end, the person who you truly belong to, you are with them and the other person has somehow gone away or been dealt with. She's clearly being set up as an ice princess. Mm -hmm. She's got the impeccable hairdo, the impeccable clothes. She's beautiful. She has clear disdain for a cottage that any of us normal, warm-blooded humans would Mm -hmm. walk into and think, this is beautiful and wonderful. I can't wait to spend my honeymoon here. And she is all but picking up lace doilies with one finger and Mm -hmm. tossing them aside. I'm exaggerating a bit. She has grace but no charm. Yes, She seems quite cold. And it's also defined in the immediate rapport that Oliver and Laura clearly have about things that matter to them, Mm -hmm. not about how a room is decorated, for example. So it shows up as much in contrast as anything to do with examining their relationship directly. We don't know that much about them right now, except that they're engaged. We don't know why, but we'll find out. One of the things I like most about this film is how it takes that trope, it takes that very basic beginning, and subverts that. And by the time all is said and done, you realize that she is a much more thoughtful character than you gave her credit for, much more sensitive, still not destined to be with him, but a more fully formed person than we thought initially. First, we're going to meet, for me, the true monster, which is Oliver's mother. (laughs) Which is a shame because I love her so much. It's Spring Byington, who is wonderful in all things. So we're moving quickly ahead. Oliver has, in fact, gotten his commission for the Army very quickly. It's the day that he's due to report. It was also supposed to be his wedding day. Now, again, because at the point of the movie, we're in the beginning time of the war, even though the film is made towards the end of the war. There's definitely kind of a blithe and optimistic tone to his leaving. It seems more like he's setting out for an adventure. Mm -hmm. He's preparing to leave. He doesn't want his mother to go along. It's just going to be he and his fiance to see him off. In this car ride, he talks about how he could never truly talk to his mother about important things, which is another thing that sets this film apart for me. Mm And Oliver and his fiance tell us that they have decided specifically not to do a wartime marriage, meaning marry right before you're shipped off. It's telling as well that he talks about loving her and she never says the word love back to him. And yet, the scene is also quite moving because they talk about this modern approach they have to their relationship. Mm -hmm. I love the phrase that they use in particular. We're modern, intelligent lovers, aren't we? And it looks as though neither of them quite believes it. Their relationship is more about social standing and intellectual exercise than it is about passion, clearly. I do think I started to feel a little bit something for her here. Maybe I am imbuing that scene with more than there is, but I really felt her reading told me she actually would marry him today. No, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of subtle things being communicated. This is probably my favorite exchange, both for the quality of the writing and of the performances. 
it's here where doing very little, she completely wins me over and I am convinced of just what I said a moment ago. She's okay. She is not who I initially thought she was. And she does all of that with two lines and a couple of reaction shots, essentially. And I didn't mean to suggest that I think she would get married today, again, because of that social standing, but because that's what she feels. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's this other pressure that makes her think she has to maintain some sort of outer poise that she doesn't necessarily feel. No, I think you're right. The more I've thought about it since we watched it, the more I really appreciated all the ways that it set itself apart from the standard romantic fantasies and melodramas of the time. There are things about it that are troubling, like I mentioned, and we'll talk more about it. But there are also very definitely things that are head and shoulders above its contemporaries when it comes to the quality of the writing and the subtlety of the performance. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of sweeping melodrama. There is. But it also did other things very well. Yes. I hope that I would get a little credit for liking something slightly above a melodrama, but as I'm saying that, there's nothing wrong with melodrama. Two things about that. One, you like several things that are above and beyond melodrama. And two, melodrama is probably the oldest form of entertainment on earth. And there's definitely nothing wrong with it. It's all about execution. There's not any difference in the sentiment expressed between but soft, what light, you know, and me and you and a little old brew or any of those country songs from the (laughs) 70s. They are expressing the same idea. It's just the level of subtlety and sophistication. And so these forms that are as old as we are can be done over and over again as long as they are done with sincerity and cleverness and thoughtfulness. doesn't matter. Now, war is here. To the sound of planes overhead, we're back to the cottage and what I think of as the winter light scene because of the way it looks. We learn that Oliver and his fiancée, Beatrice, are not going to be taking the cottage because he, in fact, got his commission. But Mrs. Minnett has that second sight again that the cottage will, in fact, open again soon. She's doing her planting. Laura is working on her etching. And she tells us that she's going to go to work in the canteen starting next week, which again has that sense of foreboding because apparently she's not allowed to go outside of the house with her hideous face. We now come to the height of melodrama, the saddest scene for me. Laura is slaving away at the canteen, washing dishes in the back. The, what I think of as the good time Charlie she works for, comes and urges her to come out and dance. Plenty of soldiers out there. She reluctantly agrees and goes out as a Paul Jones dance is starting. My other favorite Paul Jones scene, by the way, Green for Danger. I like that one a little better than this one because it's not horrendously heartbreaking. They both end badly, though. They do. That's true. Now tell the people what a Paul Jones dance is. It's basically a mixer. Everyone is dancing in partners to begin with, and then there's a signal, and you form one giant circle on the outside and one in the center, and you go in opposite directions, and then you make sort of a chain, and then there's another signal, and you're supposed to break and dance with the person opposite. So it's about changing partners quickly. Okay. So the Paul Jones gets called, and Laura is on the sidelines, and she's the only woman on her own, and there are plenty of unattached GIs on the sidelines as well. She starts watching the dance and begins to get more teared up because no one of this throng 
of unattached people is coming over to invite her to dance. The worst moment happens here. A guy comes through the door, spies her in profile. At a distance. At a distance. Goes bounding up towards her. She turns to look at him. He gets a look at her hideous face again and pretends to lean down to tie his shoes. This happens after a man comes all the way up to her, practically taps her on the shoulder, and then decides to skedaddle. It's basically the last straw. She grabs all of her things and heads out the door, back through the fog and the moonlight, back to the cottage. Basically, exactly what she expects to happen, happens. The reason she is refusing to leave the kitchen in the first place, I think, is because she strongly suspects this is how this is going to play out. Because you don't live your life as this girl in this culture and not know a few things about how these things go. And that's what Mrs. Minnett talks about when she gets back to the cottage. That it's not for some of us to live like other people. You've got to make up your mind and your heart that it's not for you. The moment I related the most to in the whole thing. Not necessarily in terms of physical appearance and how you are perceived. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is our life here. You put up any picture of yourself on Facebook and people come out of the woodwork to talk about how handsome you are. The picture could have visible stink lines coming off of it. And people would say, you have really beautiful eyes. So, yeah, you can't relate to how it's about physical appearance, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. I can't keep it in. That's okay. What I was going to say was how much I love what she was trying to tell her about being who you are and deciding that none of this interference matters. None of these things happening outside of you have any bearing on what you can be. Because she's really ending here talking about there is something here, specifically Mm. in this cottage, that is for you and for no one else. And I want to go on record as saying these guys at the canteen are dopes. Because one, she's a perfectly lovely woman to begin with, period. Absolutely. But much more important beyond that, she is creative and generous and kind and pragmatic. And she does woodcuts for Pete's sake. She's awesome. And she has an incredible work ethic. And she likes dogs. <laughs> there is, if you put her up... She, on. she ticks all of the Cole Rolaine yeah, boxes. She's incredible. And these guys are morons. Let me also say, even our dog gets a lot of play on Facebook, by the way. <laughs> He's adorable. He is adorable. That's true. Anyway, moving on. We next find out that Oliver is coming. Laura assumes that they got married. But the taxi arrives, and we find out Mr. Bradford came alone. Oliver is refusing to see anyone, and we haven't seen him clearly again yet. We just see him in profile. He's got his hat and his coat on. He's mostly in darkness. It reminds me almost of the way they shoot Claude Rains and the Invisible Man. Yeah, he's covered up. He still has his trench coat collar pulled up, even inside the house. Soon after, his family and Beatrice, his fiance, arrive. He locks them out. Now, we know something is clearly wrong. The stepfather talks about how it's no use becoming a mental case over a little injury. He is a complete bore, the stepfather. Yeah, he's the worst. 
His mother has no luck in getting him to talk to her. And clearly something has happened between Oliver and Beatrice, possibly a quarrel of some kind. But they're begging her to just please try to do your best to get him to open the door and come out and talk to us. I do like her a little bit more, even so right here, because she has clearly stuck by the family. She's an honorable person. This is that final bit and getting to know more about the person she truly is. She says all of this to a locked door. We learn that she must have recoiled when she first saw him because no one told her we still don't know of what. And she says, I can't help it if I'm weak. I tried to be brave. This word brave gets repeated mm -hmm. several times. And she says, we can be married right now. I'll look after you. She loses me a little bit here. It would be something of pity, right? Right. She pities both him and herself. Ultimately, I don't think less of her. Ultimately, I think they did a really good job with the character and made it something very interesting. It's just slightly distasteful the way she goes out. She's not cold, but she's not what we want her to be. No, she doesn't show the uncommon sensitivity that Dorothy does. And all of them act as though this injury, whatever it is, has been inflicted on them. Mm -hmm. We're back with Oliver in his room. He hears them drive away. He lights a match to look at himself in the mirror and leaves it until it burns out into darkness. We see what his war injury was. We see an eye scar and clearly changes to his mouth. Mm -hmm. It's been twisted. It looks like there's been some paralysis, quite possibly. When I mention the Invisible Man, when I invoke the Universal Monsters, it is not by accident, because here, the way he is presented, it is thunder and lightning in the background, he is in shadow, he is the madman in the attic. He is presented to us as if he is a literal monster, much like she is. And before I move us ahead in the story, I want to take a break for a second and talk about his injury and talk about the war. The Enchanted Cottage was first a play written in England after the First World War, and I think that that's important. Mm. The first is that, especially during the First World War, this idea of facial mutilation being the worst horror of all was quite prevalent there were no representations in art or in popular news that actually showed people very often. And so it was left to the imagination that you've in fact lost your humanity if you've lost part of your face. And I think also about the impact to England of World War I being slightly greater than that of America. First and foremost, of 16 million soldiers, there were reported 670,000 injuries that happened, amputation being another huge risk. In fact, we know Herbert Marshall lost his leg mm -hmm. in World War I. I think, I could be wrong, I think it might have even had more meaning post-World War I than even post-World War II. Okay, what makes you say so? I think just experience. People had already been through that once, okay. and it seemed to have a bit less stigma. However, where I really feel that poignancy is, again, talking about don't become a mental case over this. I'm thinking about our Let There Be Light episode, mm -hmm. and the theme of suicidal depression means so much more in this context of World War II. It brings out that element, I think, rather than the facial disfigurement meaning that sense of loss of humanity. I could be totally off base, though. 
Well, now that you bring that up, I am doubly curious to see the version that preceded this version. There's a film version of this from 1924, a silent version. I would be curious to see if they emphasize the broken body in the 1924 version versus the broken mind like they do in the 1945 version to see if it bears out what you're saying. Or if it's just my sense of it and what really affects me. What you say makes sense because we did evolve between the First World War and the Second World War and people were more willing to talk about, if only a little bit, the horrible things that it had done to them emotionally and mentally than they were, say, in 1917. And at this moment, there's clearly a huge stigma because, back to the action, we see Oliver open a drawer and there's a gun. A moment later, Laura knocks at the door and opens it to see Oliver silhouetted against the window holding the gun. Without saying anything, she rushes to him and takes it. I think what doesn't happen here is just as important as everything that does. She asks nothing of him. She doesn't plead. She doesn't overstay her welcome. She doesn't try to insinuate herself into his life. She merely takes the gun and leaves. She does not ask for an explanation. Is the implication here supposed to be that she has a deeper understanding of where he is emotionally right now because of the sum total of her experiences? To me, it feels more brave and instinctual than that. She doesn't think or stop. It's just get the gun, defuse the situation, and leave. When she later brings him some food and a letter and sees that his right arm is not working, he talks about how she can't possibly realize what it is to face life as an ugly person and then realize what he's implied, and she's still kind to him. It's a little tough for me to generate sympathy for him at this point. Agreed. Because of the whole, finally we know what homely girls have known all along, and he has achieved that understanding by being disfigured. They are equating being maimed and disfigured with being a plain-looking woman. For me, it's fairly distasteful. Mm -hmm. Is Oliver a character we like? It ebbs and flows, but for the most part, yes, I think we do. We like him initially because he responds to Laura, but in this section, which is an adjustment period for him, he's not exhibiting the most noble characteristics. But, easy for me to say, I've never been wounded in war, and I do not know what it is like to try to reintegrate myself into civilian life with a scar on my face, with a wounded mouth, with an arm that doesn't work. So easy for me to say, well, you're being kind of a jerk here and you're treating this woman terribly because of it, but he hasn't been given a lot of room to figure out how he's going to proceed. This is all really fresh still. So we give him leeway. There's a moment coming up shortly in which he declares himself, his feelings for her, that I think is both pure and it fools me which is great. I really enjoy that it put one over on me momentarily. So everything that he's doing in total, yes, we like him, we pull for him, we would like him to recover, and we would like them to find each other. I'm thinking about that phrase, fooling us. Okay. I think that's absolutely right. We like him because he's a reflection of what Laura sees in him. Mm -hmm. We like Laura 100%. Right. She doesn't need any selling. 
when she begins to bring out the good things about him, that's when I like him. Not necessarily for what he is, but the good sense that he shows in liking her, which we're just about to get to. But if it is within him to find these things in her, he can't be all bad, right? Yes. There's something there to work with, at least. And it takes more than just her to bring it out of him. It takes the mentoring of Herbert Marshall also, who has gone through, in real life, as you mentioned, a similar experience, and in the film, has lost his sight. We're at a moment when Oliver is opening up a bit. Laura is able to make a specific connection with him about doing something that you love because you love to do it. And he sees and says, you're very kind and you have a lot of sense, which to me is the highest honor you Mm -hmm. can bestow upon people. That's at the moment when John, Herbert Marshall, and his nephew arrive to try to see Oliver. And Oliver is in full self-pity mode at this point. And you mentioned Herbert Marshall's injury, and I couldn't help thinking, again, Herbert Marshall lost a leg in World War I, what he was feeling during this time in these scenes. Delivering these lines. Yeah. Because at this point, Herbert Marshall had had almost 20 years to adjust to this loss, to this injury. And he had mentioned later on recalling that after the injury that he had, he had initially over-dramatized his loss and was wrapped up in self-pity and bitterness. So it really does seem like it is coming from someone who has been there and has come out the other side. And Herbert Marshall, for years, went back to hospitals and talked to soldiers who had had losses as he had and counseled them about what his experience was. And in reading about it, it seemed like in a very real and helpful way, not in a sort of rah-rah, motivational speaking kind Mm -hmm. of manner. And I think you see that here. He becomes his mentor, and he talks about finding something, a new talent, new friends, some sort of place to put this energy and direct it into something good. And I think we see that clearly makes a connection in Oliver's brain. So Herbert Marshall's real-life experiences greatly informed what he's doing here. Makes a huge difference. A difference you can see in the performance. Does Robert Young have anything similar to that when he is looking in this mirror? Robert Young is interesting and not to me at the same time. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. Yes. I came to him through Father Knows Best. I had this idea of the majority of characters he played as being kind of happy, Mm well-adjusted, really. I started with him with Marcus Welby, which was on TV when I was a kid, actually watching it as it aired, and then working backwards through his career. So I came to Father Knows Best after that, but I had the exact same impression that you did. Well-adjusted, calm, paternal. Bland. There is that. And I didn't realize until much later that he made his last feature film in 1952, but made a hundred films before that. All sort of B-tier programmer. He was not a riveting leading man. And then the more I learn about his personal life later on really gives the lie to a lot of these performances except this one. He felt a lot of bitterness evidently towards Hollywood casting directors because he was placed in those sort of B-level films, never really given those big chances. He suffered from depression and alcoholism for a very long period of time. He attempted suicide in January of 1991. Which was just a few years before he died. As a much older man, he carried it with him 
for his entire life. Decades and decades and decades. So I do wish he had been in more things like this. If he had, I probably wouldn't confuse him with Robert Montgomery nearly as often. True. <laughs> Robert Cummings. Any of those guys. Now, the scene that we had mentioned really marks a turning point for him. He becomes outwardly much more jolly. Laura talks about how wonderful it is to see how he's changed, and I think for the good. And yet he still has that moment where he looks at himself in the mirror as if he's expecting something to happen that hasn't happened. Laura comes out to talk to him and talks about how these last few weeks that they've had, she's felt as though she were helping him, these walks that they've taken, these talks that they've had. But he's received a letter from his family, basically an ultimatum. You can either come back home and we will care for you, the implication being that you need care, or they will come out to the cottage and bring a nurse. So clearly they think he has no way to manage on his own. Which the viewer knows to be patently untrue. Absolutely. He can completely contend with this fend for himself, especially together with her. This is when she touches him, which was a pretty remarkable moment for me. She hadn't done that up until this point. And he blurts out almost a marriage proposal. Will you marry me? And the way it's set up is that she thinks he's doing it in order to get rid of his family. He frames it as, you think I have so many other chances at this? I like you as a person. Hey, isn't that good enough? To her credit, she will not be used. Absolutely. She has my most favorite speech here. We mentioned language a couple of times. She talks about how she and other homely people take refuge in their dreams. This place where, even though you're aware of your ugliness, you hope that you're beautiful and desirable. Desirable for me is the key word here, because that can have so many meanings. What are you desired for? Is it your beauty, your intelligence, your companionship? your sense and sensitivity, any of those things. I think it's a wonderful word to use. In this proposal, she says, it's cruel to destroy those dreams. We still hope that someone wants us for ourselves, for whatever this thing is that we are desirable for, not because we're the only person around and we're nice. This makes me think of the Charlotte Lucas character in Pride and Prejudice. How so? I'm thinking about that woman who is no longer young, who is unmarried, and going back for as many centuries as you can imagine, up through the 1940s and even several decades beyond, what stigma there is for an unmarried woman with no prospects. Like Charlotte, she is essentially a burden on others because she doesn't necessarily have the means to make her own independent way in life. Laura can at this point, but it's still a very small existence. And thinking about everything that's wrapped up in that stigma of homeliness, what it actually means in real economic terms even. So it's not a terrible thing to think about a marriage of convenience almost. And this proposition would be about neither of us being alone. We can care for each other. We like each other. He talks about when he has one of his black periods, he'll just stay away and not inflict himself on her. I make no such promises. Uh, I know. <laughs> but that he does care for her. The longer he talks here, the more I'm convinced. He changes slightly as he 
is literally thinking his way through it. And I like this better than some of the more overheated declarations similar to this that you would see in a different movie. Because it doesn't seem like he set out to say this. No. It seems like it is all occurring to him as he is speaking the lines. And together, through their conversation, they are figuring out what they truly mean in what they say and what they mean to one another. So are his motives pure? They might not start that way, but it feels like by the time you get to the end of the scene, he has worked out what part of them are. And it fools me, like I mentioned earlier, and so does she. As it turns out, neither one of them are being completely honest here. They both reveal later. But they do such a good job with this that I go hook, line, and sinker right here with it. Do you have to be in love, or have been at some point in your life, to truly enjoy this, or at least have really wanted to be? Does this make itself unavailable in some way, this movie, to people who have neither felt that nor have any interest in feeling it? I don't know the answer to that. I can speak again to the time that I watched it before. Before I met you. Before I knew what it was to truly love someone. It's almost a disservice to even ask, especially when we think about this character of Laura, who's never had the opportunity presented to her, has in fact had it cruelly taken away even the possibility many times from the simple level of a connection to another person. I believe because it's happened to me that something can come unto you that you don't fully understand and that for you and I, it will take decades to understand. There's that movie level of falling in love that we've seen a million, billion, trillion times. And then real love, as we know, happens once that bubble has passed. Interesting that you say that, because Is This Cottage not a metaphor for maintaining that bubble forever? It's all honeymoon all the time. So when all you have is desire... What happens when desire is replaced with real life? Does it make any of it less tangible or less valid? Is your implication there that desire has to go away then? I think back again to the word desirable and how that's equated with a dream state. I know that the desire doesn't go away and only grows as they find a little bit in a different way as this love begins to transform them. It stays and grows, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But when you make the mistake of equating desire with love, that's what can go away. So I don't think there's anything wrong with watching this in the mood of melodrama and romantic fantasy. And maybe for some people, that's all they'll ever experience. What do you think? Do you think you have to experience these emotions in order to truly understand? Maybe not to truly understand. If you were somewhat of an empathic person, because of the fantastic job they do with it, I think you can get it. Just understanding the people they are, alone and together, I think you can get it. The thing I think that would keep you from it is that if you are not inclined to that sort of thing, you would not discover it in the first place. I don't think it keeps you from understanding or appreciating the film. I think... It would keep you from discovering or even approaching the film in the first place. Because if you are not a capital R romantic at heart, why in the world 
would you track down a romantic fantasy from 1945 in which two lost and lonely people in the bubble of the Enchanted Cottage learn about love's transformative powers? It doesn't seem like... (laughs) Well, when you say it that way, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So yes, I think you can get it. I think you can enjoy it. I just don't think you would come to it. Well, his incredibly persuasive proposal of we're the only two people here and we're both hideous (laughs) monsters works because they do get married. Right. Now, Oliver and Laura have sent John a letter saying something extraordinary has happened and we need your advice. He goes to see them that night and learns that they've only been going out at night They've been basically in hiding, which I read as, they're doing it. (laughs) They've been covering their faces, and then when they come through the door, it's in shadow. So what is this big mystery? And they say to him, again, he's blind, remember, we've changed completely. He takes it as, obviously, you're, you're very, very happy. And they say, no, it's an actual physical change. They then flash back to the night of their wedding. They're having a private dinner. And they have that moment of realization that they've gone into this, again, with these possible less than pure motives or motives they haven't completely revealed to the other. Oliver talks about this marriage for him is selfishness, a barrier to the world because he didn't want to be alone and how terrible and shabby that must seem now. Laura, on the other hand, knows that she has loved him for some time. And that she could never really reveal what he has meant to her. And it seems essentially like a tragic farce. She goes to try to make him understand how she's feeling through music. Which I can't imagine actually happening in real life. If you went to the drum kit and started to play something. Let me sing you some. We all know how you feel about being sung to. Yeah, please don't look me in the eye. There's something I've been wanting to tell you. Sit here on the couch. Let me get my mandolin. (laughs) Okay, once years ago, this guy came over, brought his guitar, and started playing something. And I said, oh, wait. It's uh, the neighbors are going to complain about how loud that... And he was singing so softly, and I just couldn't handle it. Sorry. (laughs) I just thought of that. Do you remember what the song was? I do. You gonna tell me? You wanna hear it? Yeah. Cold Brains by Beck. <laughs> Why? I don't know. At least an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah. Of all things. Whew. Was it Blackbird? <laughs> was it James Taylor? <laughs> okay, anyway. The song that she plays infuses the room with this new warmth and radiance. And this enchantment starts to spread. And they begin to see each other in a new way. And they realize they're beautiful to each other. Which for her means they basically swept her hair off of her face and trimmed her eyebrows a little bit. For him, it's no more disfiguration. His arm can work again. Now is here where we really are going to get into how awful the message is right there? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Because not only, apparently, should all homely girls be kept in a shed. (laughs) Sorry. But anyone with any sort of wound or scar or disfigurement 
or who is disabled even slightly in any way, the message here is you are less than and you need to be restored. It's impossible to get around how heinous this part of what the movie is saying is. And really confusing, I think, when you consider the context in which it was created in the wake of World War I, when the play was initially written, what people's feelings about this must have been. I guess in some way it reflected the general public's opinion about these things. But as often happens with films that are older like this that we go back and take a look at, now it is profoundly disturbing to see how they treat those issues. And to be clear, when they are talking about this change that has happened, when they're interacting with each other, they actually have physically changed. She has gotten this makeover. He has use of his arm. He doesn't have his disfigurement. Right. We'll find out in a bit that other people see them as they have always seen them, homely and or disfigured. So it's not a mental leap that we have to make as the audience. We're clearly told they are beautiful now. They're not beautiful in their other aspect. The emphasis that it puts on standards of physical beauty. I cannot see now or then how that could not have been alienating to a huge part of the audience. Have you been asleep <laughs> for the last hundred years of representation of faces and bodies in any sort of popular art form? Well, I don't know what my sleep schedule has to do with anything, <laughs> but... I know it happens. I'm not saying those things don't happen. What I am asking, basically, is, isn't it reasonable to be perplexed by the idea that it takes place? Is it not normalizing it to say, well, where have you been all this time? What I mean to get at is, why does an audience stand for it? Why does an audience, just after World War One or just after World War Two? not react with more sensitivity to the horrors that some of these people went through? And why does a contemporary audience still patronize and put up with being told the vast majority of you are under this attractiveness line and therefore are less worthy? Why do people put up with it? I don't know. And I'm glad that you clarified that and I think I was overreacting to something that I thought you were <laughs> saying which is that it somehow never occurs in popular representation mm -hmm. of these to my mind endless amounts of makeover montages right. and this concept of beauty being pushed on us all the time I wish we would raise our middle fingers yeah at those things well you can we can and do some of us do I think I've been complicit, unfortunately, if that's the right word. If we watch these things, I'm sorry, I don't even, I shouldn't even say we. If I watch these things, I'm essentially complicit, right? Less so if you are just watching, more so if you are buying a ticket, I guess, and supporting it, voting with your dollar and saying, I would like more of this, please. Good point. If you are in any way giving them some residual based on your viewership, then definitely. So what does it mean then, after all of this discussion, that something like, she's all that, <laughs> plays constantly? 
if we had cable, I'm sure we could turn it on any number of channels and it would be on, coming on, just having been on. Right. And it's practically benign in its own way, but the message is not. I guess I ultimately don't have a good enough answer for this. So is it then taking the easy way out to number one, choose something like this as my episode, but then also think about those parts of the message that I do respond to? I don't feel like it's taking the easy way out. Like we've said with a number of these films from several decades ago, they're always going to be a mixed bag, I feel like, when it comes to issues of representation. They're not modern films. The film is suspended in amber. It has not had the opportunity to move forward the same way the rest of us have in the 70 years since this was made. Like she's all that. (laughs) So progressive. Perfect example. (laughs) But no, I don't think it's taking the easy way out because it's complicated. And so we take the opportunity to talk about all of the things positive and negative in it. And I think the positive elements of it far outweigh that part of the message. That part of the message is distressing. But there is also something very noble and true about the notion of the transformative power of love. I think earlier you used the word troubling Mm -hmm. in a couple of different contexts. In this one... Is it as troubling, I may be restating some of what we've already said, but that so many people can, in fact, relate to this idea. Which idea specifically? That they are invisible. Okay. That maybe they don't have a purpose or they matter. And then in another's eyes, they find that purpose or they find that inner beauty that becomes outward. Do you find any of that relatable? I think I specifically mentioned the part that I found extremely relatable when she comes home after that catastrophic dance and she is reminded that we are not like the rest of these people. That doesn't have anything to do to me with physical appearance. That has to do with your mindset and who you are, the content of your character, because it exposes the shallowness and a number of other unsavory characteristics in the other people who are reacting to her. As for the rest of it, I think you suspect correctly that I don't relate necessarily to caring what anybody else thinks about what I'm doing, who I am, what I look like. I did make a note here near the end of the film asking what is there to really be sad about, not to downplay the struggle of recovering from a terrible injury or being shunned by a community, But ultimately, I am always going to side more with, you don't have to care. Why do you want so much for people who are not valuable to like you, to be attracted to you? What is it that you find worthwhile in their validation? If they are indeed shallow and ignorant, why bother? I just simply would not care. Now, that is a bit of a chicken or the egg thing, I know, because... Maybe by virtue of my position, I have always been in a spot where I could afford not to care. I made that joke earlier about your physical appearance, that I consider you to be one of those universally attractive people. Thank you. You're welcome. And I don't mean to suggest that you're also a villain in a John Hughes movie, that your (laughs) lofty position has somehow placed you outside of all of the rest of us trolls. But I guess I'm a little bit more on the side of the folks who are the invisible sometimes. If your only community ends up being shallow, 
even after you put yourself out there and give them a chance only to find out that they're going to knock you right back down, I don't think it's illegitimate to actually want a human connection Mm -hmm. from the people around you to maybe hope that amongst these hundred people, there's one person in there who sees my value. Because we do want to be loved, I think most of us. We want to feel something. We want to be seen in another person's eyes, even if they continually let us down, even if they're not necessarily worthy of it. We don't always know that right away. You made me think of a couple of things there. One, invisibility. Embrace it. You know what you can do when you're invisible? You know what a privileged position that feels like to me. To be able to move without being noticed or observed, how much you can do with that. But if it's a privilege and not... Inflicted upon you? Yes. It's a choice you get to make whether or not you are invisible. I don't know. I'm basically giving advice that I think your mother would give. Agreed. Why do you want to be friends with people that don't want to be friends with you? Yes. And the second part of that, the other thing that I was thinking about, is that it just stems from basically the punk rock thing. Viewing the world more as an audience. And I just don't give a shit what the audience thinks. I'm going to play the song I want to play. I don't understand why everybody doesn't want to go live out in the country by themselves with nobody else around. But some people, I guess, actually (laughs) want to live maybe in a city and talk to other people sometimes. Whatever. That makes me think of something else that occurred to me back to where we started in this scene about the marriage itself. Oliver talking about how he realized later he chose this marriage in order to create a barrier to the world, in order to, I think, make something right of this self-inflicted, self-imposed isolation. I want to be as specific with language as they are. In this, and I think it may be closer to say buffer than barrier. Mm, To me, those connote slightly different things. And I feel like buffer rather than barrier is probably what he's trying to do. I know it's a small point, semantic point, but to be more precise in keeping with the theme of the movie, with the language, I don't think he wants to shut it completely out forever. But I think he wants something that will protect him. And buffer implies that a little more to me than barrier. Protection, yeah. And he talks about how, essentially, for him, this marriage is selfishness. I would venture to say that every marriage is that, to one degree or another. Every interpersonal relationship, period, has some element of that. Maybe not to the degree that this does, but I see that in what we do. I see that in what everyone does. It makes me think, again, about the aspect of the message that I relate to. The more we're married, I want to spend more time with you, not less. Mm -hmm. You become more beautiful to me every day than even when I first met you and I thought you were a pretty beautiful (laughs) Wren. That's how I view my selfishness. I want more from what we create together. It gives me more. It Mm -hmm. gives me something I need. Something you couldn't achieve on your own. Yes. Even though I'm delighted to be on my own and always have enjoyed that, there's something else that I didn't have before that I have now and that I'm hanging on to Mm -hmm. and don't want to let go. Is that selfishness? Is that how you think of his statement? And how does it apply to you, do you think? It's much the same. With any successful partnership, there is something you can achieve that you could not do 
by yourself, usually in the form of some sort of validation that you cannot generate from within, something that's being reflected back at you. I would be perfectly content to live a life completely isolated from everyone and everything most of the time, much like you said. But there is a happiness that I achieve with you that I don't achieve on my own. And so sure, to want that is selfish. Ideally, we would give each other as much of that as we receive from one another. But you cannot say, honestly, that there's some part of that that you don't enjoy. Because otherwise, why enter into the covenant? Why put ourselves through the things that are difficult and complicated about it? If there is not some magnificent reward, it's not completely altruistic. There's a lot to do with personal satisfaction that is received from being in the partnership. So yes, in one regard, I relate to what he's saying about the selfish nature, the transactional nature sometimes of being in any sort of relationship. But I do not relate to or understand the notion of achieving that through half-truths like they do. Absolutely. It does, though, make me think back to something you said a moment ago. That, to me, is why, one, people would watch a movie like this. Mm. Number two, why they might feel sad in the situation that they're in. Because things like what we have do exist in the world. People find it. And so I think that's why, if you don't have it, but you see that it's possible, you might want to continually try to extend yourself out to make these connections, only to find that they are not necessarily available to you because of the circle that you are in. So it is perfectly legitimate to feel sad or even more accurately, I think, disappointed in what you are experiencing when it comes to that, if that is what you are encountering. I think when I said, what is there to be sad about? I was thinking of it from a much bigger non-romantic picture. I was just looking at it as a general approach to not letting other people dictate how I'm going to feel and what I'm going to do, whether that's in a social situation, regardless of what the circumstances are. Ultimately, like we were talking about a moment ago, strive for something more, whether it be this media that you consume, these messages that you take in, or how you decide to live your life. Well, why don't we strive to wrap this up then? Okay, we're not going to tie it up in a neat bow, so right. let's get back to the film, and we're rapidly approaching the ending. Okay. First of all, we have a great scene where they obviously totally had just done it. <laughs> and she has a great speech talking about how everyone was so jealous of the bride on their wedding day, which you then said, the Erica Long story. <laughs> Moving on, though. Sometimes I'm pretty funny. Yeah. Moving on, though, we have the scene that they have set for us, which is that they have been, in fact, transformed physically by love. They have John as a witness who is blind, so he can't bring a testament to this. Mrs. Minnett has carefully avoided them at all times. But the final showdown, really, is that his family is coming back to visit. They're pretty excited about this because they have something at last to show off. When his parents arrive... John is there to try to intercept them first and say, basically, look, for once in your lives, <laughs> do something good. Right. Go along with this. I don't know whether they have, in fact, been transformed, but this is what they're feeling. And they're obviously not ready to be told that it's the truth or not. They're still in this bubble. So please 
just go along with them. Clearly, though, the parents are not getting it. They're not getting what he's trying to say, even though he's being as clear as he possibly can, short of physically restraining them. So the couple comes down. They're so excited. They're happy to see them. They're feeling great. But his mother can only say, oh, my poor boy, and talk about how she's there to help and how Laura is so much more than a pretty girl. She has so many other qualities, clearly implying You don't have the attractiveness quality. Cue dropped teacup. Yes. They leave, and we end with Mrs. Minnett telling her own story about this lost love and her own honeymoon bubble. She had a husband, he went to war, and he didn't come back. And so she's lived within this period, and they had that same truth that Laura and Oliver have experienced, which is that your love has changed you. You've been given a gift of sight that isn't granted to other people. And so they write their names on the glass, and they've enshrined their love in this place. And in the final scene, they arrive at the front door of the house where the party is taking place, where Herbert Marshall has outlined this entire story for everyone. He's completed his composition, and before they go in, they take a moment to make out. And it seems like, in retrospect, it was a good and necessary thing that the parents came and revealed to them what the outside world sees. Because now that they have gone through that, they are ready to go anywhere and face anything together. And no more of those half-truths that you mentioned, for themselves or for each other. The end. What I'm left with at the end is one big question for you about the role that illusion plays in life in general. How necessary it is for people to employ that to navigate their day-to-day and to a lesser degree just in film going in general why it is that people seek it out because you do gravitate toward a very certain specific style of romantic fantasy you as in me specifically yes not the universal. universal so what is it about those what is it about nurturing that particular illusion that's so important to you and possibly just as important if not more to culture at large I've always been that person who suspends disbelief in watching film. Always have. Can you do that pretty easily? Yes, very easily. You tell me how many times have you watched Alien with me, and I still (laughs) jump at the same spots regardless. I am prepared to and give the benefit of the doubt to what I watch. I'm ready to fall into it and explore the world that they create. That's interesting to me because we do pitch this show as... You know, we're not critics, we're not academics, we are cinephiles. Does that impair your critical ability, do you feel like, if you are that willing to be pushed? If you are already leaning, let's say, does that hamper your ability to look at something with a more critical eye? It probably did when I was younger. I think, though, that that period ends when the credits are rolling. Okay. I can then, I think, look back on it and try to assess it, but... I love the film-going experience. Mm -hmm. Whether it's at home or at the movies, I'm ready to go. And I get actually actively irate when that experience is disrupted (laughs) in any way. I can vouch for that. Yes, because I'm ready to go. I'm very much like you in that when the house lights go down, I feel a true sense of excitement and anticipation for the potential of what is about to happen. Because probably like me, you've had many transformative experiences Mm -hmm. at the movies or in books or in music. Things happen. You feel things. 
I've learned things about myself in the world. However, some of those things are probably illusions. I'm an only child. I grew up really in my own head. And so movies were often the way that I did actually learn what I thought to be truths about other people, about things going on, because I didn't know how other people really lived. But now, as an adult, I don't want illusion in my daily life particularly. I would like people to be honest with me, and I prefer to be honest with people. I am actually, sometimes to a fault, literal, Mm -hmm. and take things quite literally. I've been through those periods of unnecessary sarcasm, and I don't need that on a daily basis. I actually want to know what you think and feel. I wonder how many other people can relate to that of accepting a boundless world of illusion in one respect, but really wanting things to be straightforward otherwise. Thinking back to being more careful with words, I think of it as having the quality of imagination more than illusion. I don't think the thing you mentioned there is uncommon at all for people to want one thing in real life and another out of the entertainment they seek, specifically the conditions you mentioned, because in each one of those instances, it's the least complicated way. In real life, if you could take everything at face value and just be honest and straightforward, that complicates your life the least of all. And when you are turning to entertainment to exercise that imagination, it's a safe place to do that. You can indulge in any manner of flight of fancy or examine any number of situations that you would never in a million years want to find yourself in in real life, and it's the least complicated way to examine those things, still question yourself how you would react to those things, but ultimately when all is said and done, you're still safe. Not to imply that it's mere escapism the way you watch film. I was just about to use that word. It's more about exercising a muscle than it is turning something off, but exercising it in a manner that you are safe to indulge in any sort of thought experiment you want to and come out the other side unscathed, transformed maybe, but not harmed. I can explore whatever this idea or truth this film wants to tell me and then Decide for myself, what do I think about it afterwards while enjoying it thoroughly as it's happening or not enjoying it? Well, I think we pretty much covered everything having to do with why you chose it. Is that right? I think so. The tone, most of all, the language that I enjoy so much, the performances, as always. But really that tone that's unlike anything else. That tone in those performances, the total package of it, makes me think of one last thing that I was going to ask then if we've covered all the rest of that. This film has a distinctly old-fashioned feeling to it. I think I would have thought that even watching it on its initial release. In 1945, it would have felt all the world to me like this was a film from 1931. I'm sure some of that has to do with the fact that the source material is older than that, obviously. But the way it is presented in 1945 is distinctly old-fashioned to me, even for that time. How so? Mainly having to do with the conventions that they use. The tone specifically, it's sort of an intangible thing, but it doesn't feel like a post-war film. When I think post-war, I think we're edging into film noir. I think things are becoming more gritty and realistic and turning away from this sort of idealized portrait of anything. People 
are wanting to see a more accurate reflection of their experience as opposed to something this sentimental and highly stylized. Or illusion, as you mentioned earlier. And so it made me think specifically of this. How do we, as cinephiles who are fans of films from all time periods, encourage a contemporary audience to approach something like this? Because this seems to me, out of all the things we've chosen so far, one of the things that might be the hardest for a contemporary audience to get their head around and be patient with because of the conventions put into practice in the film. I bet you have heard this a lot. I know I have. How do you get my kid interested in reading when they don't like to read? What's the book that you would suggest to them to get them excited? You've probably heard that before. All the time. All the time. I think of your question in the same sort of spirit. I think back to when I was a kid. I've talked about my mom a lot on the show. She's the one who got me involved in film in the first place. Through all sorts of periods. There was a specific focus, though, it feels like. It seems like there was very much a Turner classic. Yes, it's this time period that we really started with. Which, in the spirit of your question, seems like it would have been the most difficult to get me, a very young person, involved in. That's when you indoctrinate kids. When they're young. Okay, and it worked. Mm -hmm. But... Worked on me, too. Little Rascals, Laurel and Hardy, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all very early formative experiences... Though I will say, no matter how many times I was made to watch it, Andy Hardy can take a flying leap. Definitely. It's always about finding your way in. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes down to you find that actor or that type of comedy or that type of drama that somehow speaks to you and then you keep connecting those dots afterwards. I still know that there were some of those films she would turn on. For me, it was Roy Rogers. That I would cross my hand, my arms over my chest and sulk on the couch and refuse to watch but sit there because there was nothing else to do. And then it would get me to the thing that I would get really excited about. For me, that way in started with mystery and where the Enchanted Cottage falls in, this kind of sweeping romance. Because I just didn't see a lot of that in my daily life or in the <laughs> community that I lived in. It was a more exotic, interesting idea to me because I couldn't walk outside and see that exact thing taking place. I was also a big Anglophile as well. So other countries, other accents, other languages were always really exciting to me. But I understand that I wouldn't share that experience with my contemporaries at the time. You didn't necessarily have anything in common with your contemporaries then, or maybe our contemporaries now, for that matter. Very few of them. I've been talking a lot with our friends, at least most of whom are cinephiles like we are, talking with them lately about how many films they watch and looking at statistics for the average person's movie going and finding that... The average person, they'll see 20 to 30 movies a year. Whereas between the two of us, it's more like 500. And of that 20 to 30 for the quote-unquote normal moviegoer, 6 to 10 are in the movie theater, and the balance of that is probably Netflix streaming some new release. I would say a very small percentage of the average person's movie-watching experience takes in anything that was made prior to the year they were born. Is that how it comes across to you in your conversations with people? Definitely. So how do we make that appealing? How do we make the old stuff, quote unquote, appealing? What's your pitch to someone about why classic cinema 
matters? Do we have to first of all redefine classic? Because the age we are now, when we were watching movies from the 30s when we were kids, that is like someone now watching All the President's Men, to put that in a contemporary context, which seems like yesterday. Is a steady diet of 80-year-old movies for young people today something that is even possible? Anything at all that they can even consider approaching? That would be the equivalent, essentially, of asking young me to take in a steady diet of nothing but Edison and Nickelodeons. And while I enjoy those things, I don't want to watch nothing but those things. I don't want to watch nothing but factory workers leaving for lunch. Six minute short. <laughs> uh, that's a lie. Because you do. <laughs> or mustachioed weightlifter gets hernia. <laughs> so how do we expand the vocabulary and make those things appealing? The first thing I thought of was, well, after, okay, really the first thing I thought of was, I don't have to explain this to anybody because if you don't get it, you're a dummy and then get the <laughs> hell out of here. Really what it makes me think of is making a case for all film, and that means any film, not a specific period or a specific genre, but having the capacity to accept all of it because then you will find something interesting and you will be able to find the value in what I'm watching right now, Jean Dielman versus The Goonies. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately comes down to art appreciation of any kind, making the case for that. And I don't know that our streaming services necessarily do that great of a service to it because there is the quote unquote classic films little scroll over to do. And I don't want to watch How to Marry a Millionaire again. That doesn't do anything for me, but I Laura would. does. Sure. I do want to mention at this point, Filmstruck is the saving grace of all of those streaming services. Absolutely. And there are a lot of these things available. You might just have to dig for them, which is the difficult thing. If you have to work for it, sometimes people will just give up. Mm-hmm. For example, we are about to have the opportunity to see the Marseille trilogy. Mm-hmm. I have to miss the first episode because I'll be working. So we were looking to see if it was on another service like Filmstruck. You found it on YouTube in its original French with no subtitles. So that's going to turn away a lot of people. Sure. I'm going to give it a try. I think that that means that, I guess for a lot of these things, ultimately our audience is going to be smaller. It's just going to be a smaller subsection of people. But if you can cultivate that appreciation, it's a fervent and passionate audience. Well, while you are feeling so evangelical, let's get to your recommendation. It's probably not going to be that one thing that the person looks back on and says, that turned my whole view of cinema around. You never know. It's true. It's pretty obscure. But anyway, it's Portrait of Jenny from 1948, directed by William Dieterle with Joseph Cotton, Jennifer Jones, and Ethel Barrymore. It's about a young and mysterious girl who inspires a struggling artist. I picked it really because I watched it at the same time as The Enchanted Cottage, and they're forever linked in my mind. It also has an incredibly peculiar tone that I don't think you'll see in anything else, though I can't wait to show it to you so you can decide. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. Speaking of making those connections and finding your way in, just you mentioning William Dieterle is enough for me because he made one of my favorite films of all time, The Devil and Daniel Webster. 
So I already trust what he's going to do. And then you endorse it on top of that. So therefore, I really want to see this. It has that same visual beauty, but in a different way. Okay. That same otherworldly quality. And in fact, it was shot in certain scenes to look like a painting. To me, it's meant to be watched very, very late at night. In fact, very early morning and in winter time. And if you watch this, you will be in the company of just a select few of us, and you'll be able to keep that memory inside of you, that special place. So try to seek it out. And you just got us a copy, so hopefully we'll watch it really soon. This week, I would guess. And how about your recommendation? My recommendation is a little more obvious than yours. I went with The Best Years of Our Lives from 1946, directed by William Wyler and starring Frederick March, Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Harold Russell, and Virginia Mayo. The connection is twofold. It has to do with the conversation we were having about encouraging people to find accessible films that might be a way into the world of classic cinema for them. And the other connection is a pretty obvious surface one. It's about three servicemen who are struggling to readjust to civilian life after they come home from World War II. And to me, this reflects what you were saying a bit ago about audiences looking for something a bit more realistic Mm -hmm. post-war, which I think this falls into that category. To some degree. I like it because it's about as honest as a major studio film could have been about this stuff in 1946. It's well-acted and thought-provoking. It's not particularly edgy. It doesn't quite go as far as other films would be able to go a few years down the road. But it is very straightforward and honest in terms of dealing with these particular issues that these men faced with their reintegration to civilian society. And it has moments of great beauty and great sadness. It is a capital C classic that everyone who is serious about studying American filmmaking should see. It's got a powerhouse cast, obviously, one of the all-time great directors. It's just a great way for someone who might not be well-versed in the classics to get a toehold in that. I actually know two people. They're not cinephiles particularly, and that is their favorite Hmm. movie. We did it again. Two great recommendations. (laughs) Portrait of Jenny, and the best years of our lives. And that brings us to the end of episode 44. Before we get into the special thanks related to our podcast, I wanted to thank Lars Nielsen and Austin Film Society for inviting me to be the guest programmer the other week for the History of TV Murder, She Wrote episode. We mentioned it on our previous episode, And it was so wonderful. In fact, it was pure joy for me to see all of the wonderful faces in the audience and provide what I think to be two spectacular episodes that I hope get people excited about watching Murder, She Wrote. Hopefully those episodes were their way in to Murder, She Wrote fandom. I think you did a fantastic job. And it was a really fun event. And it was really nice to make some new friends there, too. It's always fun to meet other people who are similarly obsessive as you. Maybe not about that particular thing, or maybe about that particular thing, but just in general who are that excited and enthused about something. The Austin film community has a ton of those people, and it was great to see a lot of their faces. So thank you again to Lars and AFS. And if you happen to be listening to this episode because you came to the event, welcome. 
If you would like to get in touch with us about Murder, She Wrote, or anything else, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in either one of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who shared the show or has given us feedback since the last episode. Travis Trudell, Tim Lego, Grindhouse Dave, Jane Sankner, Eric Parkinson from the podcast This Must Be the Place. He sent us a really cool link after listening to the Andromeda the Strain episode about all the split diopter shots in the movie. And I added that to the show notes. So if you want to check that out, you can go back to our post about that. Craig Eastman and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Mike Scharf, Jeff Duncanson, and the folks at Potterverse Con. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play, and just about any other podcatcher that you use, you can find us. And finally, if you would like to find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, you can find those at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Thank you.